Athletic. Right, Reds, Tony Evans here at Walk On, your Liverpool podcast from the Athletic. Where does this all go wrong? We were once the MV Europe in the transfer market, and now Liverpool losing out on targets left, right and centre. British transfer records offered only for Klopp to be turned down by both Caicedo and Lavia. We'll get into why Liverpool's recruitment department has fallen into ruin and discuss if it can be salvaged before the transfer deadline. And here to do that, we'll have James Pearce, Simon Hughes and Kiefer O'Neill. And to kick us off, I want three little words. Kiefer, your favourite bit of the show, I know. Love it. Um, well, they aren't my three words, obviously. A bit messy, this. Yeah, well, I'll agree, I'll agree. Simon. Um, another wasted week. Yeah, yeah, I can see that as well, James. What a mess I had. Again, I agree completely. And Andy Legg, over on the Walk On Podcast Facebook group, agrees with James. What a mess. Jane Stacey, shows her hand. Michael Quayle, sensationally shambolic summer. Easy for him to say. Stephen A. Martin, <laughs> what's going on? For me, I'd just say, get a grip. To join our community of listeners on Facebook, just search Walk On Podcast and join the group. All right. Well, how have we ended? I mean, how have we ended here? I mean, why? Why are we offering, you know, a British transfer record fee for a, a defensive midfielder? And why is he saying no, James? <laughs> well, I think the, the the simple answer to that is Liverpool got used. It's pretty clear that you don't put in a bid of that nature unless you've had a significant amount of encouragement that the players' camp and the player himself wants it to happen. A crazy, crazy few days, really, in the transfer market. You know, when looking on social media early on Friday morning, the the jubilation and elation for many waking up and and finding out that Liverpool had you know effectively agreed to shatter their transfer record and the British transfer record to to sign Caicedo, and then for Klopp, who doesn't usually say a word on transfers until everything is signed and sealed, you know, confirming himself at his press conference that a fee had been agreed. You know, he did. He did then go on to add the caveat that um, nothing was agreed at that point with the player. But yeah, it just quickly unravelled, didn't it? To the, you know, it, within a few hours, it was apparent that Caicedo's camp were were still favouring Chelsea, and that once Chelsea were able to put together the, the offer that Brighton wanted, it was gone. So um, yeah, I think disappointing, and then to rub salt into those wounds, the fact that you know it's it's not signed and sealed yet, but we're expecting Lavia to to go in the same direction. So, um, yeah, two body blows in quick succession. Yeah, I mean, on Thursday, uh, someone close to Brighton texted me and said, like, oh, I hope, you know, Caicedo goes to you, but this agent is trouble, and he spelt out trouble, you know, in um, capital letters, and I'm like, oh, okay. And clearly, Liverpool got done over there, didn't they, Simon? They did, but, I mean, I, I don't think it's a moment to sit back and feel sorry for themselves. And, you know, I don't think it necessarily reflects well on Liverpool. Uh, maybe they've been outmaneuvered by, you know, an agent playing games. Um, I mean, Caicedo changes agency. It's, it's, it's a bit like the early days of Fenway, isn't it? Yeah. When they were getting they were getting done left, right and centre. All very naive, I, I just think. Um, 
So, I mean, Caicedo changed his agent earlier on this year uh, to a new agency after after his move to Arsenal broke down. And obviously they've been promising a move to Chelsea for quite a long time now, but Chelsea weren't able to agree a fee with Brighton. Liverpool obviously come in very late. Very strange. You know, I did think it was very strange when Jurgen Klopp started speaking about this and said that they hadn't agreed, <laughs> you know, it becomes a public matter that they've made the bid, but they haven't agreed terms with the player. Very unlike Liverpool. And then that, then leads them crawling back to Lavia, who they've been refusing to meet the, new, uh, the asking price by offering above what Southampton supposedly wanted. So the whole thing's been a mess, really. It doesn't reflect particularly well on anyone, uh, whether or not they have been sort of used as, as an agency, you know, the, the sort of um, by an agency. That, that I think people who are very good at this game tend not to be outmaneuvered in this way. Um so it's not it's not great for, for Liverpool's perspective, and I think now they've sort of shown the hands as well. So it means that a lot of other clubs who might be targeted by Liverpool and for their players are able to say, "Well, you you can afford, a, you know, a British record fee for a defensive midfielder. You know, where's your money?" Kiva, do you think they've dodged the bullet paying all that money for Caicedo? I mean. Do you think he's that good? Do you think he's that sort of a transformative player? I mean, you're paying 100 million. I mean, Harry Kane, I know there's an age difference, but Harry Kane's gone for 100 million and he'll get you how many goals a year? A lot of goals. And he'll probably be able to go on for a couple more years. But this fella isn't exactly the most proven, you know, defensive midfielder. And you're going to pay, you know, you're going to bet the firm on him. Am I, the, am I the only one on crazy pills? I think for me, the main sort of, point on this is that Liverpool was sort of teetering around the edge of 50 million for Lavia like slowly but surely trying to like up the bid that just made me think if you want a player you go out and get them and I think we've spoke about that on the podcast and then this all sort of comes about and then it just kind of feels like so why were they not trying to pay you know the money that Southampton were quite clearly you know, willing to take now that's a mess in itself but then obviously the Caicedo stuff is a separate mess that just come out of nowhere, which often, you know, these things do. But never for once. Like, I was never, when that news broke and people were getting really excited about it, Liverpool fans, naturally, because any midfielder will do at the minute, almost. But then to get one, you know, of such high esteem, is, is in so much high esteem and talented and all the rest of it, you know, there was excitement. But I just felt like it was all too messy and it wasn't going to quite come together. And I think other people maybe felt that way as well bit of a weird time and then to start the season without that missing piece of the jigsaw if you like is not great and then to see the performance at Chelsea and that it was quite clearly missing that kind of player that Caicedo or Lavia is that just hammered it home even more and obviously playing against Chelsea you now look like you know we'll have both of the players that Liverpool potentially wanted so it's yeah complete mess really. I mean I can understand getting turned over by a player. And I agree with you, Kiva. But the worst look is, you know, the, the laviest stuff. You know, we don't want to pay 50 million. We'll give you 45. You know, we'll give you 46. And then Caicedo falls through and it's like, we'll give you 60. I mean, it just makes them look stupid. And there was a time, not so long ago, pre-clop, where agents were just sniggering about the way Liverpool operated in the transfer market. And then that disappeared. There's a little bit of... um amusement going on at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, I think there's a few things there. I think, first of all, Liverpool have denied those reports that they offered 60. The You know, the latest we've reported through David Ornstein was that he's expected to join Chelsea Lavia for 
for 50 million plus add-ons. So, you know, I was, I was surprised when I saw that because, I mean, that would have just smacked of absolute pure panic if you've gone 37 million, no, 41 million, no, 46 million, no, go to someone else and then end up crawling back and offering 60. But, you know, e- either way, I think it all builds into this concern, which I think is well-founded among supporters that the club, a club that has been widely praised for having a strategy and be, for being very good at planning and for sticking to their guns and, you know, and all the rest of it, you know, is, is, is suddenly that decision-making has gone awry. And, you know, I think you go back to last summer and, you know, Klopp being adamant they didn't need to sign a midfielder then. And you end up, you know, going through that process in the summer where it became more and more acute, the need to sign someone. And they end up panicking and bringing in Arthur Mello that, who ends up playing 13 minutes of football in the whole season. And then, Can we get him back? Then, Can we get him back? <laughs> too late. He's already he's already gone out on loan again, hasn't he? So it's um, no, it's it is, it is a mess because anyway, it's not again. It's for me, it's not so much it's not so much missing out on those two players because I think Caicedo, you know, the background to that was that Chelsea had done a hell of a lot of groundwork on that deal. They've been working on it since January you know, when Fabino first left. Liverpool said. Caicedo is not an option because we know he's going to Chelsea. You know, he only became an option because Chelsea were dragging their heels, dragging their heels, trying to agree a fee with Brighton. Brighton get in, getting increasingly annoyed at Chelsea's negotiating and that left the door open and Liverpool tried, they tried and failed. I think, okay, fair enough, embarrassing, bit of egg on your face, but move on. But, you know, and, and the same with Lavi, I just think, I think, I think Liverpool need someone more experienced than Lavia. When you look at that Liverpool team, like Lavia's yeah, 19. And, you know, so in itself, I haven't got a problem with Liverpool deciding he wasn't worth what Southampton wanted. But the, the thing is, you've got to have another alternative up your sleeve. And and, and that's why, you know, let, let's see where Liverpool go from there. They've left themselves, you know, a, a real hole to try and dig themselves out of um, because they haven't planned well enough. Yes, of course, they couldn't, you can't plan for something like what's happened with the Saudi interest this summer. But it's over a month now, over a month since Liverpool flew to Germany for that training camp. And they'd already had the bid for Fabino. You know, the, the Henderson thing was still rolling around in the background. But they've known for a month they had to go and sign a ready-made replacement for Fabino. It is ridiculous that it's it's dragged on this long. And, you know, as Simon said, they're now in a, you know, a, a pretty dreadful bargaining position where, like, you know, everyone knows you're desperate with the clock ticking. And they also know the cash is there because you can't plead poverty when you've just offered 111 million for someone. Imagine the scenario. A much-loved and inspirational leader has announced his intention to take a career break and you need to find someone just as tactically astute and charismatic, but perhaps without the glasses and the teeth. Well, when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They've even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk. W-L-K to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast from The Athletic. I'm here with James Pearce, Simon Hughes and Keeve O'Neill. Simon, I know in these situations we want to point fingers and it's often a much more complex situation. Who's to blame here? The knee-jerk thing is to blame Fenway Sports Group. And without a doubt, there, there is an element of culpability there. But it can't be all on them, can it? I tend to think everybody involved has some culpability. And if you start, if you want to start where this all begins, you've got to go back to Michael Edwards's announced or announcement that he was going to depart. So this is like 2020, I think I'm right in saying, aren't I? Towards towards the end of 2020. So that was that was three years, you know, three years ago coming up to. Um, you know, Liverpool had just won the league for the first time in, in 30 years. That summer, they'd signed a few players, but the, the sort of the big eye-catching signing was Thiago. Uh, shortly after that, you know, Edwards has decided that he wants to move on and has a long period of gardening leave where, um, not gardening leave, sorry, a long farewell, essentially, which then leads into sort of a gardening leave as, as Julian Ward takes over. Um, there was an assumption, I think, that, that, th- that, you know, the good times would continue to roll, really, and... I think that was part from what I could gather, you know, when Julian Ward then decided to leave, that that was sort of the the the, the thing that was sold to Julian Ward, that, that not much would change. But in the middle of all this, Mike Gordon sort of steps aside temporarily and uh, Julian Ward doesn't have that sort of triangle involving himself and the manager. I know the club has done its best to sort of suggest that, you know, this is, you know, no part of... A, a deeper fallout or anything like that. But, you know, there can be no doubt that if you lose, sort of, you know, losing one sporting director, you know, is bad. But when you get two in such a short space of time, it can't be really a coincidence, I, I think. Uh, and then the, even though they've been given sort of a big build-up to this departure, they're still scrambling around looking for a sporting director as, as the summer transfer window begins. And obviously the guy who... Is doing it now. Jörg Schmadecker is is sort of hoisted out of semi-retirement. You could argue, you know, that yes, FSG at certain points should have been more aggressive in in rebuilding the squad. Yes, equally that they should have maybe stood up to certain decisions that were being made about players' contracts being renewed. And those decisions at the time may have been unpopular amongst the fan base, but it may have been the right decision. Now, you know, they're, they're busy getting rid of players who who have signed those contracts. Fabinho, Jordan Henderson, they're not they're not seeing out those contracts. They've been sold. Um, so I think the FSG at certain points over the last couple of years could have been a bit more ambitious with what they were trying to do and, and, and being, trying to be more persuasive with the manager in terms of saying, well, okay, you might not want these players to go, but here's some money to make sure that you get the, you know, that you get, you're given the maximum opportunity to do the best with your replacements. I'm not absolutely convinced that that happens. Meanwhile, I think at certain times, the manager's been too loyal to players, um, which has led us to this point, albeit, you know, for, I would say Fabinho's exit is probably a bit of a happy accident to some extent in terms of the money that they've got. And that has only happened because the unexpected you know, sort of change that's happened in Saudi Arabia and their approach to football. But nevertheless, as we discussed at the beginning, you know, the, the, the position that we're talking about here has been quite evident for a long period of time that, you know, they should have had a long list of people who, or at least a, a reasonably long list of people who they could sign. And they've sort of 
rather than being... I, th- I think if you look at the Fabinho signing in terms of the way he, he joins, you know, Liverpool were, were sort of the influencers in the market, get, you know, they, they were the aggressors in the market and now they've let him go and they're on the back foot. I think that's sort of very reflective of the way things are, you know, in terms of how the, the change has been between 2018 and 2023. They've gone from getting a deal like Fabinho done under the radar, you know, a high quality player from a Champions League club, fresh off, you know, a couple of brilliant seasons to letting him go unexpectedly and not really knowing what to do uh, in reaction to that. They've become more reactionary. So I think everybody has, has, has got a, a role here. The, the other thing that bothers me about this, Kiva, is that we're, we're so often told that players will come to Liverpool just to work with Jürgen, you know, that he's such got such a great reputation and all that. And he's starting to get turned down. And is it just a matter of money? Or is there something else that inside football, there's chatter that makes players shy away from coming to Anfield at the moment? I don't know. I was thinking about this because I look through the list of players Jürgen Klopp signed and you kind of look and think, well, the likes of Van Dijk, Alisson, like Si mentions, Fabinho, all felt like, I guess, players that had proven themselves, definitely in terms of Van Dijk and Thiago. You were signing players who'd experienced a lot, in particular Thiago with the trophies he's won and etc. But then when you kind of look through the list, most players are kind of still needing to prove themselves in some way. So Mane, probably to an extent, remember there was sort of chat around when he, he joined them for the fee and people were like, you know, should the Liverpool have paid that? Obviously, yet he could have paid triple because of how good Mane was when he was at Liverpool. And, you know, the same goes for Salah as well and, and players like that. And you kind of look through the list and think Liverpool still have pulling power of course they do the signings of Cody Gakpo for example would prove that more recently Luis Diaz but again these are players that still need to do some level of proving themselves and I think you got confidence from how Liverpool signed Alexis McAllister in particular I thought because of the quality of him as a player and you feel like the summer started so well didn't it and especially Sly as well so Liverpool just had to back that up and things would have been pretty good had you backed it up with Caicedo or you know another player and I think fans would feel a lot more optimistic and less worried about Liverpool's pull and power what's going on behind the scenes and where this leaves Liverpool going into obviously the rest of this season having it only just begun under such a cloud of uncertainty in so many departments. And I think that's the the worrying and and troubling thing for Liverpool. James, you're never going to get stability when a club's up for sale. And there's uncertainty, isn't it? Always. How much is that playing into this equation? It it can't help, can it? I think just, again, it comes back to what we've said before, that a, a club that has been widely praised for kind of stability and and strategy and sticking to a plan. And then suddenly you've had all this upheaval in a short space of time, you know, it's not a great look, is it? When you've only got you know a, st- a sporting director with a stopgap essentially in Schmadka, you know, a three-month contract runs out at the end of this month. You know, he's the third sporting director in the space of what 14, 15 months from the end of Michael Edwards to Julian Ward, just doing it for a year. So yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in terms of the pulling power, I, th- I think a lot of it does come down to money, and I think Chelsea have moved the goalposts as well with these ridiculously long contracts. That are, that are being offered because, you know, the, these eight-year contracts are just guaranteeing just crazy, crazy sums sums of money. And it's it's just two completely contrasting approaches because, you know, I know there's a really good piece on The Athletic today kind of explaining from the, 
you know, why Chelsea are able to do this and how they can spread out the cost in terms of accounting and everything else. But it's a massive gamble what they're doing. You know, you're, you're giving eight year contracts. Oh, or backfire. Or backfire. Yeah, because it's, 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 um, you know, yes, okay, it, it can look very clever into it, but it, exactly, I, you know, it will, there's, there's a real, real gamble there because, you know, if that player flops badly, then, and he's like, well, do you know what? I'm all right, actually, because no one's going to pay me anything like this. And I've actually, I'm guaranteed this money for the next six, seven years. If someone gets a really bad injury. And I think, so, and it just comes down to like the different business models. I mean, I know FSG have made some mistakes, certainly along the way. And I think, you know, they haven't backclopped sufficiently at times, but they're risk adverse, aren't they? That's the thing. Mm, you know, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. you're not going to, it's, it's, it's literally the opposite to what Todd Bowley's doing at Chelsea. Can I just say one thing? You started the show talking about sort of early FSG and, you know, it did make me think not not quite the same way, but, you know, the anti-Carroll move, wasn't it? It's obviously spread over a longer period of time when Liverpool suddenly realised they can sell a player for a lot of money who's, you know, on the slide, essentially. And then what do we do? We sign anti-Carroll. But I, I think if you compare what happened with Caicedo to... To Virgil van Dijk, for example, you know, when Virgil van Dijk signed for Liverpool, he became the club record signing and obviously Caicedo would have done. But Liverpool, you know, played a really long game with Virgil van Dijk to get him in, you know, and uh, you're talking about the pulling power of Jürgen Klopp. You know, I remember when van Dijk came in, he, he spoke about this, you know, about the fact that Klopp was like really wanted to hang his hat on him and you are going to be the main man. And, you know, this sort of longer, you know, sort of weight that Liverpool plays out, were willing to play out, curried favour with the with the player. I mean, I know, I know when um when Jordan Henderson left recently, Virgil Zapfan like spoke about that, you know, that they got Henderson in front of him and was like, you know, you're you know, really explained to him where he was gonna be and, and and how he would suit playing for Liverpool. Of course none of this happens with Caicedo. None of it. It just happens over a very short space of time. Liverpool had had accepted that he was going to go to Chelsea, didn't expect Fabinho to leave. And then we're on the back foot from the very beginning, really hoping that, you know, this eye water and fee would would sort of um, show how serious they were. But in terms of all the groundwork, none of that happened. So is it really any much it, that much of a surprise when the player decides to go to another club as well, bearing all that in mind? Um, I don't think it is. Do you think with a club like Real Madrid, for example, like obviously Liverpool were interested in signing too many before Madrid sort of got the hooks in and a big club like that can just have that effect. But I think you're seeing it now, obviously Chelsea are a big club, but you're seeing it now sort of happen more often with different clubs. And you, do, I do think about Real Madrid a lot, that pulling power they've got and how they've run is like, you know, signing Jude Bellingham and Liverpool pulled out of the race early because it, it became clear that, you know, you can't really compete with a club that are running that way, but also a club that are just a, a superpower in terms of how many fans they've got and all that. But Liverpool have been playing, you know, in Champions League finals recently, two of them against Real Madrid, yet have been unable to sort of put themselves on that level, that scale, like a Liverpool up there as much as we think they are because it just right now it doesn't feel that way does it well I, you know I, I think you're 100% right I don't think you can compete with Real Madrid because you know no matter how we want to cut it they're probably the biggest club in the world they are the biggest club in the world you know it's um, City are always going to be able to outbid you but for me 
and obviously things are being done in a really strange way at Chelsea. But it's it's such a, a mess what's going on at Chelsea to be beaten by them. And and I get your point, James, that they've got the long contracts. And, you know, if, I suspect in three years, people will look back on this summer and say, why were people playing over 100 million for defensive midfielders? And Caicedo will, you know, won't have the, the impact of Chelsea that I might be wrong that, uh, you know, perhaps they want, but they'll have to pay him off if they want to get rid of him, you know, it'll be, um, so it is, it's hard to deal with that. I, I get the difficulty with that, but, there's a wider problem, isn't there? There's a problem deep in the recruitment department, which we've seen, where people are leaving, and, and in the medical department as well. The, things aren't running as smoothly as they did, say, pre-COVID, James. That's my view of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there has been a, certainly a lot of change, and a, you know, in a in a in a short period of time, and that that is bound to have an impact, isn't it? You know, right right from the very top downwards in terms of the owners seriously thinking about selling the club and then deciding to row back and and say, actually, no, we're going to go down the road of minority investment, which again, you know, many many months on, we're still waiting for for developments on, and you know, yeah, we talked about. The sporting director changes, you know, losing your director of research in Ian Graham. You know, you you think of yeah, you, the medical turnover as well. So, um, so yeah, I think like it's the, I, I I think I think you have to look at these things in isolation. I think it's easy to go, well, hang on a minute, missed out on Chuamani, missed out on Bellingham, missed out on Caicedo, missed out on Lavia. You know, is there something inherently dreadfully wrong there? And you think well. Tremaine just wanted Real Madrid, and I think you're always going to struggle, regardless of how much stability and expertise you've got, you know, to compete with them. Even and the Bellingham one, I've had, you know, lots of people have said to me since the weekend, you know, well, if we had 111 million, why didn't we just go ahead and buy Bellingham? Why did we drop out of Bellingham in April? And it's like, well, the only reason that Liverpool were in a position to offer that amount for Caicedo was because of the Saudi money coming in from Henderson and Fabino and the way the nature yeah. of those deals. Is that that money is is in you know essentially paid up front in big lump sums because of just the riches that those clubs possess? It's not they're not Premier League type deals. And again, I agree with Kiva there. The fact is that even if we would have had the money back then and made the bid for Bellingham, in the end, it comes down to Liverpool, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Real Madrid. You're going to choose Real Madrid, aren't you? Well, I think also is I think it, uh, his wages at Real Madrid are over four hundred thousand pound a week. So it's it, 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 there's always more to it, isn't there, than just you know mm. you look at the fee and what was it eighty five million was it I think guaranteed rising to over a hundred and so it's yeah there's always other things to fact, factor in and certainly Caicedo or, or Lavia for that matter would have been on considerably less. I, I just think you know I'm not I'm not particularly disappointed about Lavia because I think I think he's just so so young and he, you're buying potential rather than you look at this Liverpool team and they're crying out for someone much more complete. It's, it's, it's more now where do Liverpool go because, because, you know, the options are dwindling. And they've shown their hand as well. Yeah. Which isn't helpful. Tony Evans here with Walk On. Your Liverpool podcast from The Athletic. I'm here with James Pearce, Simon Hughes and Kiever O'Neill. Simon, it's becoming increasingly clear through last season and this season that really we probably shouldn't have spoken about the midfield and the defence as being 
sort of separate units. It was like a, a complementary seven rather than a four and a three. What Sunday showed to me, anyway, I, I, the only real, the only defender I thought that performed anywhere near, you know, the levels that he should be at was Canate. Regularly, I thought Andy Robertson didn't seem to know where he should be. Chelsea obviously had a plan for him. Van Dijk sometimes I felt quite regularly he was too high when he was meant to be deeper, too deep when he was meant to be higher. Trent decent in possession at times, but you know the the fact that he wasn't always on the the right hand side got exposed on several occasions. So my, my concern about the whole recruitment thing is is do Liverpool know exactly what they're looking for at this moment at a time when they're trying to transition stylistically as well? You know. It, yeah, well, I, I, I watched the Tottenham game against Brentford, which was a really entertaining game. And, um, I mean, Tottenham did ultimately concede two goals, so maybe this doesn't reflect particularly well. But, you know, Liverpool, there was talk about Liverpool going for Van der Ven, who, you know, big left-footed centre-half. And I think, you know, he, I think he, he'll be a good player for Spurs. Um, the sort of player you would think Liverpool would be in the market for, but seems like they never move for him. So I think he needs a player on that, on that side of the pitch who can sort of cover, you know, sort of the centre-half slash left-back position. Whether, whether you know, they'll be able to get two players out of the pot of money that they've got, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, you did start the show, didn't you, Tony? You're asking about sort of 111 million for a defensive midfielder. Uh, I can understand the, con- the conversation around that. Um, it's a lot of money to pay for somebody who is essentially doing all the dirty work that nobody else wants to do. I suppose the counter-argument would be, well... Liverpool only became a great team when they signed a goalkeeper in a centre half. You know, sort of obviously they're not just just playing defensive roles, I guess. But now, you know, finding those players to do the dirty work isn't always quite as easy as people think, I guess. Just on just on Andy Robertson, I was going to say that um, I, I do feel sorry for him in, in this system because I do think I think his strengths he's not able to show them as much because obviously it hinders him in terms of attacking wise when essentially he becomes part of a front th- of a back three when Trent steps into midfield and i think you know defensively at times in that first half against chelsea he was on his own on that side because i think it didn't work playing gagpo as one of the three in midfield he didn't get any kind of help on that left side and and not much help from diaz either so yeah it's i, I can understand so I, I saw what simon said about you need to recruit a left-sided center back but I, I, I actually beginning to think, is this system really, really the best way to go forward? Even even hearing Trent say, you know, afterwards talk about, you know, I think when he was asked about, you know, would you not like to play in midfield just permanently? And he said, well, yeah, of course, you know, of course I'd give it a go. And you think, I think, well, there's almost an argument that do we just ditch this system? And and it would 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 a big big chunk of that money be better spent on buying a right back and just making Trent a midfielder from now on? Yeah, I, I was going to say that, Kiva. I mean, I've spoken for months about they need tactical developments because people have worked out how to stop the full backs and all that. But is this going too far? This new system where you you put you basically you dispense them with Andy Robertson as a an attacking full back, and you're moving them into a a a left sided sort of centre half slash. Yes, it's a yeah. back three almost, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah transition but was it like that as much at Chelsea I felt like Trent wasn't in the same role as he yeah he picked his moments a lot more didn't he yeah it felt like he was more of a right back than a hybrid sort of right back right back midfielder than we were used to seeing last season like ahead of the game I was just thinking just 
I don't know, like Gakpo is great and I think picking the ball up in the middle of the pitch, he's good at, but he's he's not a midfielder. So play a midfielder is a good start. I know it's great to sort of mess around and play players that you believe in and trust will do a job. But sometimes I'm like looking at the bench thinking Curtis Jones would have, you know, mm. has had a very good past few months from around April, had a very good tournament with England under 21s in that position it's a different level obviously stepping up but he's Premier League proven and proved that towards the end of last season you do kind of think there are players there obviously there's injuries to players like Thiago and Bajetic at the minute which doesn't help sort of all of that and it feeds into itself but there are things that can make it better and obviously that's down to Jürgen Klopp and his team and I think it's not something that we're going to stop talking about anytime soon it feels like it felt like that last season and we've spoke about how you don't really feel like going forward. There's there's optimism, but it's it just feels a little bit tainted at times. And definitely coming out of that Chelsea game, the mood is a weird one, I'd guess. It's not like a real positive mood that other clubs are probably having after their opening game of the weekend, like Arsenal and Man City. Liverpool are in a completely different field, it seems. And you kind of wonder when the reality of that sets in this season because it took a while last season. But is it already there to see now? Because it feels like it, it was on the pitch at Stamford Bridge. A lot of this comes down, again, it, it comes down to the same points about recruitment. Um, I think I maybe made this point last week in the podcast, and I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but when Michael Edwards did his job, I think... He was very good at obviously signing players and, and, you know, the sort of the business side of it and speaking to the right people and getting things moving along. But I think he was able to choose the right players because there was such a clear identity of what and clear expectation of what the manager wanted. Whereas now we're in a position where the team is, I think, sort of trying to change its style. When I wrote a piece about the medical department last season, I sort of led in on the sort of lack of sprinting that Liverpool have been doing. And it was put to me subsequently that the, you know, that the style of the team's changed and become a more possession-based team, blah, blah, blah. Didn't quite make sense why they signed Nunes then, because he's not a possession-based footballer, I would say. He's more of a counter-attacking-based player who would suit what Liverpool used to be a bit more, maybe. I'm sure people might disagree with that. But now they're obviously trying to change the identity of the team into something that the manager's not, I wouldn't say, certainly not renowned for. I just feel, sort of touching on what James was saying, would they be better just reverting back to what they were very good at a couple of years ago, albeit with players who are younger, fitter, and able to to deal with the the physical expectations of the manager? Because um, for me, it, it just feels, I know they finished the season well last season, but I still wasn't entirely convinced by the setup of this team. It was a bit underwhelming. Yeah, it was, it was underwhelming, and he still ultimately didn't finish in the Champions League place. I mean, you asked before about are Liverpool less of a proposition? Well, yes, they are because they're not in the Champions League anymore. Um, so that that's very simple answer. I would love to know whether the manager totally believes in this new strategy, because if he doesn't, it will translate into the players. Um, and at the moment, it just feels very confused at certain times on the pitch. This makes it harder, I would say, to recruit the right profile of player for exactly what you want when you're in a transition. It's Salah. It's a Super Bowl. It's Diaz. It's a Super Goal. Well, James, you were there at Stamford Bridge. We've been perhaps a bit negative, and no wonder, given everything that's going on. But there were positives, weren't there? 
There were some positives. Tell me there were positives, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were positive. I, th- I don't think I don't think we really learned anything from that game that anyone didn't know who's watched Liverpool during pre-season in terms of the ability to create and click going forward is is there in abundance in terms of if you look at the firepower. Um, you know, the goal was absolutely sensational. I didn't being there wasn't until I got home and watched it back again. I realised just how good that move is from you know. From back to front, just the, you know the quality of the. I think it's, I think it's the layoff in it from Sabozlai to Kanate to McAllister. The quality of that pass into Salah's feet, the, the first touch, the vision and the execution of the pass, and also for Luis Diaz, you know the first time finish. Um, so there was a lot to admire. And I, th- I still think you know if Salah had just had just you know a split second later made that run and, and had managed to stay on side two nil. I'm not sure Chelsea come back from that. I think that that felt like a big, a big moment in the game. Um, so yeah, Diaz massive positive. I think we're seeing already the benefits of him having a full preseason because um, yes, he came back in the last few months of last season, but he'd missed so much football. He was never going to get back anywhere close to where we want to see him. And yeah, I, I even thought you know the two new boys I thought did really well in midfield, and then. Second half, I thought Harvey Elliott did well off the bench. Um, you know, managed to give Liverpool back a, a little bit of control. The same with Curtis Jones when they needed some fresh legs. Alison Becker, thank God for him. You know, he was absolutely immense again. I, he's going to be a busy boy this year, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, that's. The, I mean, the danger is Alison because he's just so ridiculously good. You almost just take it for granted. Well, he, he'll save that. You know, he'll he'll deal with that. Um, yeah, I probably felt for him a little bit because he probably thought, you know. I, I had to be come to the rescue enough times last season. I thought I might be a bit better protected this time around. But yeah, no no chance of that, unfortunately, at the minute. But um, yeah, there were probably... It was a, I reckon it was a real strange game to make sense of because, you know, I think Liverpool could have won it and it, they could easily have lost it. And probably in the end, you'd say, with the deficiencies in the p- performance, I mean, only having 35% possession is a bit alarming because I think that showed the, the lack of control and the lack of a of a shield in front of that back four just to take the sting out of proceedings at times. But yeah, when you look at the amount of money Chelsea have spent, new manager, new air of optimism down there, it, it's not a bad point. Yeah. Kiva, I mean, so we move on to Bournemouth, the Damfields, uh, you know, this week and um, 9-0 last year. Oh, we, we could easily score nine again, you know, with the firepower, probably nine, nine, five, nine, six this year. Yeah, I mean, that was the game where I think fans were like, okay, this could be fun. And then, you know, it all kind of didn't quite happen for Liverpool last season. Um, But yeah, I think Bournemouth is a good first home game for Liverpool, given sort of the fact that um, I think Bournemouth have only kept one clean sheet in 12 Premier League games against Liverpool, conceded 36 goals. That bodes well. Liverpool always score at Anfield in the last 42 games. They've only failed to score once. And that was, of course, against Chelsea last season because those two teams just love drawing against each other. And then, yeah, I think another start as well, which is pretty good and should give Liverpool fans some confidence and hope. I mean, they should have it anyway. You'd imagine Liverpool will win at the weekend, but Liverpool haven't lost a single home game in August or September under Jurgen Klopp. So they've won 16 and drew three. So that is... I guess all of the positives I have to give <laughs> to this podcast. <laughs> and Simon, uh, your positives going forward? It ultimately is just the first game of the season. I would say 
My personal view is I, I think there are more positives about Sunday's performance than there was, say, against Fulham last year, where the team did look very tired, I thought. And Fulham, I would say, 100% deserved to win that game. And Liverpool got out of jail. I'd say, I, I actually thought the result of Chelsea was probably... I know Chelsea dominated certainly the second half and had slightly more chances, but Liverpool still created. I still, I'd be more positive about this season compared to last season based on, I think, the players that they have actually signed are good players and I think they will be used effectively with time. I just feel that Gakpo needs to be used as a centre-forward, really, when Bournemouth come to Anfield over the weekend. So, yeah, I, th- I think that the players that they have signed are good players. So that, that is a positive, isn't it? The ones they have actually got through the door, you know, I think will, will suit the team. Uh, Zobosly, I thought, made a really, really good start last week uh, against Chelsea. But, you know, he, he'll he'll get his rhythm the more he plays. And I suspect he might end up playing a little bit more to the left-hand side of the three as as the season progresses. So there is that positivity. But I just think they've got to get a lot right in a short space of time to really ensure that, the you know, they've got um, the right players in place. I mean, it, it could end up being, a, I used that term before, a happy accident because it, clearly none of this has been sort of mapped out very clearly, uh, there are still there are always good players in the market, but just because you don't get your first choice doesn't necessarily mean that you know it's the end of the world. There are other players who can fulfil those roles, but Liverpool are going to have to. It's going to be a real test. Liverpool's existing scouting department and the the, the negotiating skills of Jörg Schmadiger over the next couple of weeks, if they're going to have the right number of players and the 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 the, the most appropriate players for the rest of the season. Well, that's it for this week on Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks to James, Simon and Kiva, and for you for joining us. Remember, you can get in touch with the pod by emailing walk-on at theathletic.com. Right, I'm about to do a Salah-style strop and storm off, but I'll see you next week. The Athletic.